My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversation. Tonight will be just such a conversation I already anticipate. My guest is Deb Gallagher, and this is part of our ongoing series about 21st century families. Tonight, Deb is going to be sharing the story of her family's path towards becoming a family. Deb Gallagher is a white, medium-aged, working-class lesbian parent who loves public radio, especially WMPG. Indeed. Deb formed her family through the messy miracle of international adoption. Her 16-year-old daughter was born in Asia, and they met when her daughter was five and a half years old. Welcome to Safe Space, Deb. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the decision to become a parent. Um, I'd love to hear how you thought about it, whether you got encouragement, how many options seemed even available to you. That's a wonderful question. Um, I I waited until I was nearly done with my 30s, and I was in a relationship with somebody who, um, at that time, who had a family, and she had gone um, a classic route, had her sexual marriage, and she had two two fine sons, and I thought, what a wonderful family. And I started really thinking about um, how I wanted to spend, you know, the rest of my life, and um, I had decided, I guess I just kind of evolved into thinking about um, becoming a parent. And um, I got very happy when I started thinking about that, very frightened, uh, extremely frightened, and uh, but also very happy at the thought of having, you know, uh, parenting a child. So I thought of a couple different ways. I, I was offered um, sperm, and um, but I, I thought... Um, I thought more closely about that, and I realized I didn't. It wasn't the having the child that I was as interested in as parenting. And there's an was an awful lot of children out there, and I thought, I wonder if I can, you know, adopt. And that was that was my preferred method at, from then on. And uh, at the time, I was working in, in a very lucrative job. It was the dot com days, and uh, I had a nice lucrative career in high tech, and um, I was able to, um, you know, to go the adoption route. And I've never been happier. So part of what you're acknowledging there is that international adoption is very expensive. I, yeah, I'd like to say that it is very, very expensive. And um, it's all this is international. The reason I call it a messy miracle is because, well, one, I got my daughter, who I, who I um, you know, I, it was the love of my life, and and always will be. But the other part of it is international adoption is is fraught with. Um, all kinds of uh, things that we just can't possibly know, all kinds of mysteries. Um, there are people, we, we don't know the culture very well, what's going on, the machinations behind behind it. We can read in the paper what they, what, you know, and, and get information that way, which I did, and I've saved that and put that as part of Molly's, you know, baby book collection so she'll understand what was going on when I took her from her birth culture. Um, but we really don't know. We really don't understand that. And what are the ramifications of taking somebody from their birth culture? You know, yes, give them a family but what what is all that about it's really complicated stuff and who's making money because it's very expensive most of the money um i understand stayed right here in the united states because i had to have um, a couple of different home studies done two uh, one for one for this country that i adopted from uh saying that that i wasn't gay i wasn't lesbian and or just not exactly saying that but leaving it out and then one for the United States, so I could readopt. That said, I I was a lesbian. When you say readopt, what do you mean? It, well, when I left um, the 
Asian country that with my daughter, um, it, the United States recognized the um, you know our our legal contract that I was I was definitely her parent. But in order to have a second parent adoption, in other words, to have my then partner also be um, this child's you know um, parent, I had to do a second adoption here. So at that point, even though marriage was not legal between oh, no. two women, this is 1995. You could still have both. So, so even though the, the government would not recognize that the two of you were married, they would recognize that the two of you were co-parenting. Yes, well, because you could co-parent. Well, you could you could co-parent without being in, in the state in Massachusetts at that time. You could you didn't have to be married to adopt. I see, but you weren't. Each state is different, and it sounds like you didn't have to be straight to adopt, but you did from this Asian country have to be straight. Uh, to not, adopt. I didn't have to be straight in the um, county that I was in. It was county by county as well. Really? So it was It was very complicated. Yes. I mean, it's a whole... There's international adoption that is messy, but then interna- adopting within a very yeah. narrow definitions of like what is okay. Oh, absolutely. It was, it was a lot. I had to hire... Um, the person I hired to do my home study was, was a an MD, PhD, and, and a JD. She had all three degrees, and she was the you know perfect person to do all that. Plus, she was an adopted parent herself. So this is the classic story where if you're a minority of any kind, you have to overperform to, clearly, to be credible. Clearly, I had instead of the usual three um, references, I had to have six. You had to like that was the word on the street. Like the only way you're going to get approved is if you no, have that, a ton. That, or... That's what uh, her when she had her lawyer hat on. Thought that that would my uh, my um, my person who did all the home study and so forth said to strengthen my my position with the judge in in a county that was. Um, much more accepting than any place else in the state um, would look would look for more references rather than just the standard three. So again, it was the over. And what I understood from you when we talked a little bit in advance of this interview is that at that time in 1995, lesbian or gay couples were only technically allowed legally to adopt HIV positive babies. Is that right? Yeah. Well, my, at the time that we were offered, I went to. Um, uh, Family Community Health Center, which was running an um, adoption information um, program there, and I went there, and uh, the the DSS person at the time was, um, you know, had said to us, "Well, we, we were very interested in hearing what what this person had to say because I would have loved to have done, you know, uh, a domestic adoption." And uh, what he said was, um, "Well, all we can offer you, because uh, you know we were all out at the time, is um, we have a lot of HIV babies that need homes." And ninety five was the time before the cocktail, and at the, you know it was hard, it was awful. Meaning treatment for HIV. Yes, exactly. Before the, um, it, essentially, it meant that the we were going to nurse the babies until they passed, and it was wasn't um, what I had in mind. I wanted to be a parent. Right. So. Right. So what I'm sensing is that the the sort of obstacles that you had to overcome to get this child were just really substantial. Yes. And it kind of convoluted and complicated oh, very, and, and, and region ex- specific and et cetera. And expensive and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So ten, tell me, I understand. So you go to this Asian country, which it seems worth naming. We're not naming precisely because adopting as a lesbian person is still not acceptable. Oh, right? no, not at all. Not at right. all. In fact, when um, well, we were very mindful that, that when we traveled with a group, and, that, and that's the other thing, we had to get an adoption agency with credentials in this country, um, out of state, so they wouldn't have to lie and say that we were um, lesbian. So, I, so we don't. We don't have a lot of a lot of people who adopt internationally have a cadre of people that they went over with 
and that they went to meetings with, and that they you know, kind of a extended connection to that experience of, of adopting. And we we couldn't do that because we we didn't want to put them in position of lying. We certainly didn't want to jeopardize the the agency's credentials. So and let so, me just make sure I'm understanding you. So you had to go through an out-of-state agency no. because they wouldn't know that you were a lesbian, and that way they weren't going to be lying? Mm-hmm. That- exactly. Okay, so there's all these layers oh. of like hiding, secrecy, yes. closetedness that you had to participate in. And I'd never done that in my life. I've been out, since, uh, been out of the closet since 1970 when I was 15 years old, 14 years, 15 years old. It was very strange. But that, that, that that's my labor. That's my, that's, your- <laughs> that's my. That was my labor. That was the equivalent of, of my labor. And with the goal in mind of getting, you know, it wasn't about my self-actualization. I was already there. So I didn't have to make any big statements. I certainly wasn't going to change that country's attitude. I wasn't going to change anything by, you know, being political about it. I wanted, um, I wanted to be a parent. Right. So then you go to this country. And tell me a little bit about what that experience was like. I uh, went to the country with uh, people, of course, I, as I said, I never met. They're all white because only um, Caucasian people can adopt also from this country. Um, and they were all um, middle class um you know, probably middle class folks, and they're married couples. All of them were all married couples. So I was perceived as a single woman, even though I was traveling with my partner, and we had to be deeply closeted there again for the same reason. And uh, I like to tell the story about how we may have gone overboard a little bit because at one particular function, um, my, my my then partner said uh, in front of everybody, "So, so Deb, how did you decide to adopt?" <laughs> and I think it was, you know, the sense was, you know, she was trying to, you know. Make it seem like she hardly knew you, <laughs> just about. And and she was presented as as the uh, the nanny. She was going to be the nanny because I was I was working very hard. I was working sixty hours a week in the dot com company. So she was the nanny. I see. So that was kind of interesting. So we were very. Uh, I was terrified the entire time, but I couldn't even acknowledge the terror that I was feeling. I put I, I you know breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. And what I understand is that in this country at that time, and maybe still, that homosexuality, I think you said, was a capital offense. It was a capital offense, yeah. And that you had known of at least one story where the the mother's sexual identity had been discovered and the baby had rem- removed from her within yeah. 24 hours. Yeah. The, it, the uh, woman had um, ha- had traveled with the, with the cadre and uh, a member of the group um, outed her. And uh, this country didn't want to lose face, didn't want to, you know, and it wasn't specifically asked. So it wasn't fraud. You know, it wasn't asked until um, some years later they, they put that, you had to sign an affidavit that you weren't, um, you weren't uh, gay, that you were straight. You had to sign an affidavit. I didn't have to. But it was after. After this, after this experience. Oh. And, of course, I would have done that instantly. You know, because there's a child at the end of the thing. It's, I mean, just because the grown-ups and the, and the bureaucrats had, you know, all kinds of uh, heterosexist problems that, that, you know, that, that had nothing to do with the child. And the, I knew the child was going to get a good home. So, This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. I'm talking to Deb Gallagher about her uh, journey towards becoming a parent. And I want to shift now to this country. So you have met your daughter, mm-hmm. five and a half months old. And you've brought her home. I did. And um, there's so many, there's so many questions to ask. But you know, one of the questions is um, all about the fact that you are each from different races, mm-hmm. and about how you know. I know that one of the kind of themes in the adoption community is around familiarity and how much that is or is not important mm-hmm. around attachment and bonding. I'd love to hear what your experience of that was in in bonding with this 
little girl who who looked so different from you? Did it turn out to matter? Did it turn out to be completely irrelevant? What was that like? No, it did. It didn't matter at all. I was I was full fully prepared. Um, I think if it did matter, it was more about how am I going to raise a child of color. To, in, to I was taking her out of um, her country of origin, and I was taking her to a very racist country. And I remember on on the plane going over, coming from the Pacific, holding her and saying, "I'm so sorry, honey," because um, mm. you know that was that was the work. But I had done. I mean, I had taken. Uh, racism workshops of you know I had done uh, read everything since I was a, a kid you know I I um, read all the African American literature I could because they were other as was I so before lesbian literature came out to you know became prevalent and I was drawn to, to, to stuff so I I tried to do as much work as I possibly could um, before that and that was the, the big thing was how am I going to raise to be strong and to to see racism for when it when it shows its head and um you know how that was the that was the only fear i had i mean she was uh, would you like to see some pictures <laughs> can i show your audience some pictures yeah, we have exactly. lots of pictures exactly. she's she a beautiful child and it was it was you know love it for and besides once you change the first diaper you know, uh, things things get very real very fast. So Body fluids. <laughs> yeah, you get it. So, um, you know, one of the things about white privilege is that white people don't even have to see racism. They don't even have to exactly. know about it. Exactly. We have a choice. And I'm imagining that raising a child of color, you have, even though you were, it sounds like very educated already, that you have been confronted with how racist this country is even more so because you see yes. how she gets treated. And I'd love to ask you about that. How do you see, or how your bond gets treated? How have you, maybe you could tell me a couple of stories about. Well, um, that's, that's a lot of that is her story. And I would, you know, if she ever get, comes on your show, I would, you know, I would love to listen to how, you know, the stuff that she has gone through. I, I understand the stuff that she's told me, but that's the, and the stuff that I see. But as a child of color, she's she's experiencing the world very differently than I will. No matter how close, how how tight we are, or used to be before she became a teenager, um, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm still not gonna see. I mean, I'll, I'll see power dynamics. I will see. I will be alert as as alert as I can. I will certainly be as vocal as I can, and at, at, you know, I would teach her how to respond. But, but maybe maybe another way to ask the question then mm. is to say to keep it from your experience. Can you tell me a story, just a sort of an example, of a time where you observed it and it really, you, where you learned something oh, new? Gosh. Okay, well, here's uh, where I learned something new. I can. Or just uh, an example. Okay, well, we um, at at uh, at a certain department store, old style department store. I was getting um, my glasses, getting some glasses. My baby was uh, maybe one or two, two years old. Uh, clearly a baby sitting on my lap while I was getting glasses, and the the optician. The fellow who was fixing my glasses or putting them on me said, um, looked at her and said, so are you babysitting? And I, you know, which is, you know, kind of classic. And I said, I said, no, this is my daughter. Because, you know, so what language does she speak? And I said, baby. But, you know, knowing full well that, that what he was really asking was, you know, how did this come to be? Um, but I, I chose to answer it, you know, that way with that particular time. Thought about it later, though, and um, decided that I had a, I had a policy of um, wanting to educate in certain, if the, if the instance was appropriate to educate, but mostly 
you know, it's a, it's a weird position, I should say, because, you know, I believe that, you know, like one thing Khrushchev said that made sense to me was he said, let Georgians teach Georgians. In other words, let people uh, teach each other. But don't expect the victim or, or the the you know, the, the um, to teach you because that's you know, they got enough in their hands. They got to deal with our crap. So the the idea of of um, me as a white person teaching about racism to, to another white person, I had done that all my life, and that was that was part of who I was. But now I'm a parent, and I'm I'm, I'm protecting my child. I got all those mater- you know parental feelings going on, but I also want to model for her. How again? How how to live in the world as a child of color when she's she's a minority, and uh, so I had you know had to do some work, and I recommend Jane Brown as as one of the people that um, you know has done a lot of work about that. She's an adoption specialist as well as a uh, uh, specializing in particular in um, families of of uh, different races. And people can so, access Jane Brown on the web. Yeah, she, she's just just Google her. She's fantastic. She'll, she'll help a lot. But I had to, um, so I had a, next time it came up, um, I modeled a little bit. You know, I said, are you interested because, you know, you can adopt yourself, you know, or, and knowing, again, full well that they were just curious. We call them grocery store moments or, you know, uh, where somebody will come up to you and just feel comfortable asking you these very personal, how much did she cost? You know, um, I had a woman at at the line of CVS say, I bet she looks like her daddy. She's such a sweet. (laughs) And I wasn't feeling it that day. I wasn't feeling very, very teacher-like. And I said, I bet she does. But, um, you know, she was, (laughs) I mean, this, this, I have lots of stuff. I mean, she's been called the the C word. She's been, um, you know, and and we've, you know, had to present stuff around that. Um, Mm. She's, um, you know, she's had a lot of stuff. We've talked a lot about, about that. Hence the apology about bringing her into this culture. I can feel that. Oh, yeah. It's well, so let me let me ask um, a slightly different question then, which is that, you know, it's my belief, my understanding that growing up in this culture, we all absorb racism. You know, it's sort of like the smog that we breathe. Mm-hmm. You can't help it. And I'm curious to ask you, have you learned more about your own racism in the course of being her parent? Like, have there been ways that you have had to look at yourself and your own stereotypes or attitudes and kind of work on them in order to be a loving parent? That's a, that's a great question. And I don't, you know, I, I can't think of anything that I've had. I've, I've read a lot more, a lot of stuff, you know, certainly a lot of stuff from other parents who are kind of in the similar spot as I am. But I can't say that anything's I think what surprises me is, is, is the contact boundary when I'm in a grocery store and something would happen. That would surprise me, but um, in terms of my own racism, I fully expected that stuff would happen, and you know, around other people saying things. And I'm not answering your question properly because I'm really having a hard time coming up with anything. I'm sure there must be something, but I can't think of of anything really that uh, that I've learned other than um, my kid is 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 very separate, and her world her worldview and her world experience are radically different than mine, and. It sounds like you've been very clear about sort of being humble about that. Like you can't speak for her. You can't assume that you even get it because it's really her exposure is so different. Totally. I mean, she sees things in in such a different way. I mean, if you imagine a child in the stroller, their view of the world is going to be kneecap and so forth. And well, her, she's 16 years old, having been raised in my family and, you know, it's my daughter and her view of the world is is unique. So I want to shift now and ask you a little bit more about um, 
how you've thought about adopting a child who has been taken from her culture and her mm-hmm. language and her context, and as well as taken from her birth parents. And I understand she was fostered for about five months also. She, she was fostered, as far as we know. I mean, a lot of it's mystery because this country doesn't you know, disclose things. It's, it's illegal, another capital offense, to abandon a child. So they're, they're not going to be, they're not going to, uh, in this particular country, that's not true f- throughout Asia, but in this particular country, that's that's was true at the time, I think, and it still is. Um, so we don't know what her birth mother maybe birth parents' um, situation was. I know that she, the, the story that we were told, and again, we don't know that any of this is true, but it, it's it's what we have, um, was that she was abandoned outside a sock factory. And um, we have lots of family giggles about that whenever I buy her some smart wool socks or something. But anyway, she was abandoned outside that at, at about two weeks old. She was about two weeks old. And they they took her, and they what they did at that time they would they made an assessment as to whether or not she would be um, suitable for international adoption because again even in, even in this country domestic adoption was illegal so they couldn't even offer her up to domestic adoption so it's either she get adopted internationally or she goes to the to the welfare institute and you know when she's thirteen or fourteen um, would be you know making our socks for us or making our sneakers for us so. Um, there were there weren't a lot of options, but she she passed muster because she was um, well, she was lucky. So, with your awareness about you know what what you've called the separation wound, mm-hmm. I'm curious to know how you have thought about that over the years in terms of how to help her with it, how to acknowledge it, that loss, and you know, how it's how, it, how what role your awareness of that wound has played in your parenting. Um. I was just thinking about that recently, about how the time between her, her birthday, which we, we made up a birth date for, it was they, they had April 1st, and we said, you know, in America, that's not going to fly. So they changed it to April 2nd until the time I met her in, in October. And I think about that period of time is the time of her life when I didn't know her, when she was having a separate, very separate life. And I don't know what was going on at that point, um, of course, neither. I mean, whatever. She... Um, you know, I, I think how I've done it is I've told her what I know, and I've told her how little we know. My daughter is a, is a very pragmatic sort of person, um, and she accepts that. I've I brought in, um, you know, every book on the planet that was available. She's had, uh, we belong to families with children from China. Uh, she went to the culture camps, you know, that we that they we set up for kids who were uh, girls, ninety nine point nine percent of girls who are adopted from this this country, and um, she, um, you know, we did all that stuff, did all that stuff as much as possible. Try to teach her her birth language, try to do all this stuff, and, and as well as raising her to, to you know, to be um, in the in the present, being in the moment, being you know, being uh, an American as well. And in this culture. And did you find that she was drawn to to learning about those things? Not at all. She was re- kind of repulsed by it. She didn't want to. She she had a very strong negative reaction even when she's very very little, when she was like 2 or 3. She was and and I have to wonder again this is probably I mean you know about development far more than I do. So I I have to wonder if uh, hearing the, her native language even at that age you know roused something in her. And it was very hard. Very, very hard for her to the point where we wondered if you know if we're doing any more damage than good. 
So even at the age of two or three, if she heard her native language, she would have a really strong yes. reaction. Yes, very strong reaction. That's very poignant. Mm. Mm. So did you back off from it as a result? or how Slowly did you... backed off that way and decided to deal with it as much as possible within the family and try to bring in people who were of the same race as she was into our family, which we did um, when she was in grammar school. We had um, a young boy from her birth country. He lived with us for a year. That had mixed results, but um, was you know still close to him. And, and uh, his his whole biological family came and and you know, did stuff. And so she got a taste of what family life, their family life, was like. Um, whatever I could do, I, w- I would I would try to do. Um, but there was a point where I realized it was for me, not for her. She was not not having it. And does she have any interest in going back to that no, country? No, not at all. None at all. No. Not at all. And I've asked her, I said, would you like to see your, you know, your birth parents? Would you like to meet them? Would you like to, you know, if, if fantasy time yeah, could right. happen? And she said she'd like to sit across, she'd like to be in a restaurant and look across the restaurant and just get a look at what her, what they look like. But other than that, she's got no interest. Hmm. But that might change. Right. She's only 16. She's only 16. <laughs> right. You You said something to me that was very poignant that I wanted to ask you to tell me again, if you would, which is about... Um, what it's been like for you as a parent to kind of realize that this child is sort of yours and not yours. And Ah, kind of this this realization Mm -hmm. that I think you came to probably much sooner than me and many other parents who go more conventional routes Mm -hmm. um, about sort of who the child really belongs to. And I'd love it if you could say more about I hope I can say it again. Um, If you think of that time that I I mentioned earlier about between her supposed birth date and um, the time I met her, um, she had a life of her own. And so she came with a life that was already in process. In pro- you know, she, she I don't remember her, I didn't see her for her first burp or anything like that or any of that. But what I, she was already, you know, she was sitting up, she was walking a little bit, she was doing all kinds of stuff. So she, and she had very strong connections to her ama, her foster mother. And uh, she grieved very strongly for that. So I saw that this this is a, a fully formed person, very small person, but still fully fully you know she was she was there, and somehow it felt naturally for me to be to think of myself as, metaphorically as a, as the trellis, as her trellis. So you know, like a trellis that a plant grows up. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I, I was responsible for providing the soil, some of the soil, keeping it nurtured, um, but being the trellis against which she could grow. And uh, that's been a great metaphor for me as, as, my, as I parent. Um, I think that's, um, and it's like I, I can't wait to see. We're to- we're completely different temperamentally. We we did the Myers Briggs when she, in third grade, and I said, "Oh my lord, the only thing we have in common is we're both mammals. Uh, we're <laughs> completely opposite." She um, she's she's very very bright. She's very um, she, you know she's she's well, I can I could wax poetic like any other parent, but she's. You know, basically, it's the idea that she is who she is already. You, I think what you said to me is sort of you realized from the very beginning that she kind of belonged to the world. Yes, yes. And didn't really belong to you. And that mm-hmm. in some ways, like uh, more conventional parents, you know, like arrive at that realization much later mm-hmm. <laughs> and often very painfully that this child is not like theirs. And uh, it was very powerful to imagine how that affects how you parent when you're sort of when you've accepted that from the very beginning. You know, that's that's a nice way you put it. I like the way you put it. It becomes a joy at that point that I'm I'm blessed to have this experience with this other human being that I get to um nurture this other human being to a certain age. 
and and love her for the rest you know for the rest of my life. I get to do that, and I get to be her parent. But um, whatever that as that changes over as she changes, but um, I, it's a sharing experience that I have with her. Okay. I'm just realizing that on that note, we're going to have to stop. Deb Gallagher, I want to thank you so much for oh, being my guest. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And I want to just reiterate, you had mentioned that Jane Brown has a website that's really useful as a resource, and you also suggested a book. Maybe you could just quickly say something about yeah, it. Yeah, it's called The Primal Wound, and it's it's about it's suitable reading for any anybody, I think, who is has adopted a, a child. And we're thinking about it. And that's by Nancy Verrier. Yes. Great. My thanks tonight to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music. I also want to thank Neil McKenty for being my consultant. If you'd like to listen to this show in its entirety or email it to a friend, please go to the website at www.safespaceradio.com. You can also subscribe there to get a weekly announcement about the topic. And you can also like us on Facebook. Coming up next is Watchdog. <laughs>